Welcome to Experts Only Podcasts, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Experts Only Podcasts, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more about Clean Capital's new partnership with Carvel Investors at cleancapital.com. Today, we're going to be speaking with Greg Whetstone, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the American Council on Renewable Energy, ACOR. It's a national nonprofit. It focuses on finance, policy, and technologies, ways to accelerate the transition to the renewable energy economy. But Greg's been a real leader in this sector throughout his career, both in the private sector and in the public sector. Prior to joining ACOR, he served as the Vice President of Terraform Power, a renewable energy company, and it also had served at American Wind Energy Association on the Hill in the National Resources Defense Council. In our conversation with Greg today, we're going to talk about what's happening in the federal policy space to help drive generation, but what's also happening with commercial customers that's helping to drive demand for renewable energy in a way that we've never seen before. And you should definitely check out ACOR's Renewable Energy Finance Forum Wall Street, which is June 19th to the 20th in New York City. You can find more information at, at acor.org. Greg, thanks so much for joining us on Experts Only Podcast. Really appreciate the work you're doing at ACOR. Thanks for having me, John. Happy to be here. Absolutely. I want to start off talking a little bit about your personal journey. How did you end up in your role as, as president and CEO of the American Council on Renewable Energy? But you know, also, why did you get into renewable energy? You've had an extensive background in policy uh, but and you've seen it from all sides. You've seen it from business. You've seen it from nonprofit. Uh, you spent some time in the Hill. You know what? What sort of made you pursue a career in renewable energy? First of all, in renewable energy policy. Well, in my uh, wide-ranging career, I was able to. Uh, I've been very lucky in that uh, I've been able to most of my career do really jobs that I've enjoyed and uh, work in areas I've liked. So I was very fortunate. I for many years worked for the. Uh, Henry Waxman in the House on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Um, I left that committee and uh, went to uh, an environmental organization, Natural Resources Defense Council, where I uh, started their legislative shop many years ago. Uh, I was uh, there for better part of a decade and uh, and then left there to uh, really to enter the renewable sector for a position doing uh, government affairs and policy at the American Wind Energy Association. And uh, that was was fun. And it was a lot of the same issues I was working on at NRDC on the energy side. Uh, And I um, uh, left uh, OWEA after a few years for a uh, private equity funded company, Terrigen Power, uh, that did wind, solar, and geothermal power, and that was great. I love the diversity of technologies, uh, and uh, I very much enjoyed working in the private sector. How did that? Ex- trans- how did that private se- sector experience sort of translate to making you a better leader at Acor? Well, it helped me to understand uh, the reality of, uh, as did my we experience uh, of how what it takes to uh, succeed in the business and right. you know how tough it can be to get those off-taker contracts and the kind of the vagaries of uh, U.S. policies on renewables and the challenges associated 
with those, the difficulty siting and permitting, I mean, really provided a chance to uh, see the transaction uh, up close and personal uh, across technologies, which, which I think is important, uh, particularly today when we have a, a sector that's pretty balanced uh, right now uh, overall between wind and solar and some yeah. real potential in other areas as well. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I feel like we're living at a time when, you know, what for long renewables were an alternative energy, they're becoming a mainstream energy. And, you know, groups like ACOR are helping to really drive that conversation here in Washington. And really, I think we're at a transformational time to have that dialogue with policymakers that, you know, no longer are we sort of this sort of nascent industry, right? We're, we're growing, we're, we're growing leaps and bounds, and this is the effect we're going to have on folks. For our, for our listeners, that may not be as familiar with ACOR. Can you talk a little bit about ACOR's role and a little bit about how you interact with some of the other major trade associations out there, like the Solar Energy Industry Association or or SEPA, or you mentioned AWEA, where I used to work? Yeah, uh, thanks for that. ACOR is an organization that works across renewable technologies, wind, solar, geothermal, hydro, and uh, also works across constituencies and that our membership uh, includes uh, investors, developers, manufacturers, corporate off-takers, uh, utilities. So we, we really cover the range of interest and the, uh, you know, the, the breadth of the renewable energy sector. And uh, we work very closely with the renewable trades organizations like SIA and AWEA and work hard to try to develop and uh, collaboratively promote coordinated strategies on, on big issues of the day, the grid, tax reform, what have you, to uh, really help expand the renewable marketplace and keep our sector growing. And we've, we've been very lucky that uh, we've been able to grow over the last couple of years. We've seen participation uh, increase from a number of big players across the technologies and big investors, developers, off-takers like Amazon and Google. And uh, our sector's been lucky, too, really, that we have more or less uh, matured to the point where we can compete on the grid and and are able to be successful at a time, obviously, when from a federal policy perspective, uh, we're no longer getting the kind of help that we used to. Right. Uh, and in, in fact, we're seeing uh, perhaps uh, some pretty active efforts to make it more difficult. Yeah, I want to come back to those policy battles in a second. But first, sort of, you know, you joined ACOR in January 2016. So you're, you're into your second year. You, know, you, you walk in on the tail end of the Obama administration when there'd been obviously a significant amount of support for these policies and these issues. And you know you walk into a really interesting election cycle that has set off sort of a roller coaster of, uh, of policy fights within, uh, or I guess you're in your third year, with, within the industry. So can you talk a little That's bit about right. that experience? I mean, you, you know, what, what a fascinating time to to take the, the lead at ACOR. Yes, we live in interesting times. Uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it has been, and, and um, I, I actually think the role that we play at ACOR 
is that much more important because suddenly we found that we really had to fight for things that really we used to take for granted, you know, getting at least a fair shake in the electricity marketplace, having supportive policies, you know, facing the things we were up against in uh, the tax legislation where, uh, you know, we saw bills with, with retroactive changes to tax programs that would have undermined the economics, not just of new projects, but even of projects already operating. So uh, we've certainly been tested, and I, I, I think we've demonstrated both the ability to have and deploy uh, important bipartisan connections, even, even in a, you know, kind of this hyper-partisan atmosphere we're living in, and also uh, the ability to grow and thrive economically despite that step back. I mean, when you look at what's driving growth in our sector, you know, the decreasing cost, the increasing consumer demand, the ambitious state policies. I mean, those, those elements are uh, continuing to uh, serve us well in the sector. So first of all, the listeners should go to acore.org, A-C-O-R-E.org. You can find the most recent annual report from from Greg and his team, plus some white papers on the vision of the grid and, and different major policy uh, ideas and thought leadership. So I sort of challenge you to do that. But Greg, what's ACOR's role in those fights, right? So we're in the middle of these policy fights. You know, we've got, for instance, uh, the Secretary of Energy going to uh, FERC to try to help stand up and put life support to, to coal. You know, where, where do, how does ACOR play there? Well, uh, thanks for that. Just with regard, let me just say that on our website, our reports, none of it is beyond behind a paywall. It's all out there available. And we have a variety of materials on grid issues, corporate procurement, tax reform, the FERC process, um, the tariffs, a range of issues. So the, the role we, we play, John, is we, we work hard to be collaborative, to coordinate with other allies across the sector, but to strategically promote our agenda and, and do so aggressively when we need to, both uh, in terms of you know, the quiet meetings with policymakers, both uh, in the White House and on the Hill. We are very actively engaged in the lead up to the grid study. Uh, had some actually very constructive conversations uh, with the White House about what's really happening on the grid. Uh, did a lot of work uh, in uh, opposition to the NOPER when it was proposed. That was DOE's effort to encourage FERC actually to propose for FERC to subsidize uneconomical coal and nuclear plants. Uh, we formally commented at FERC, met with the commissioners. Uh, we're also uh, part and, and delighted to be part and actively engaged with a very broad coalition that's working against the uh, proposals that would really undermine the electricity marketplace and provide uh, subsidies to uneconomical coal and nuclear power plants. So we're, we're working hard. We're also engaged in uh, some of the important organized electricity markets like PJM and uh, are working there as well to protect the ability of renewable energy to play the role that we can play in providing a a reliable grid and uh, ensuring economical power. The proposals that have been 
put forward would increase costs to consumers and, and give them electricity that they want. Right. Uh, more and more Americans residentially and, and business-wise are looking at renewable power. Yeah, you know, it's ironic they put it under the guise of resiliency, right, and, and national security. And you and I both know, you know, and ACOR has been a leader on this. You know, when you look at the work the military is doing or, you know, what national experts, national security experts are promoting, it's work that focuses on resilience through both clean energy, but also, you know, adoption of storage, for instance. I know you guys talk in your annual report about policies sort of at the state and federal level that could help accelerate the adoption of storage. How much of, are you seeing storage become a major part of what uh, you guys are working on? Yeah, I mean, storage is really critical to the future of the grid, and and it is a big part of how we achieve really what we're looking for is a more flexible grid. That's where the future is, more renewable power, more use of ancillary technologies like demand response, and, and more energy storage, which is getting cheaper by the day. So we, we feel confident we, we can get there. It, the whole term resilience, it's, it's kind of a great irony because and DOE's proposal to FERC, resilience was cited as the reason for the changes, and yet the term was never defined. It's not clear that it's really anything different by a great deal than reliability, which obviously has been a critical focus on the grid for decades. We're working hard. We believe that uh, renewable power has a great deal to contribute to reliability and resilience, if, if you think that's an important criteria, but it, it's a pretty warped concept that would single out, for example, nuclear power where, uh, and I have no problem with nuclear because it's low carbon, so that's great to be a carbon-free generation, but to suggest that it's resilient when the reality is a loss of cooling water creates a catastrophic incident, as we've seen, yeah. uh, is a is a a bizarre place, and I, I really question the positioning for nuclear power to be part of a resilience conversation. Just over all. a year ago, I visited Fukushima as part of a group of uh, sort of energy policy folks, and it was fascinating to get walked through the failures that happened there, and you know, watching sort of the Japanese sort of struggle with how to now just find ways to uh, get back to the base load that they need. And also watching what's happening today here domestically, you know, nuclear is on the path of coal, not in terms of the issues are going to be economical, right? They're starting to shut down plants because they're so expensive to run. You know, the resiliency piece is part of it, but, you know, they're, they're just becoming uneconomical. I think that's exactly right. It probably didn't feel very resilient to you when you were there either. No, it's unbelievably scary. <laughs> To watch well, and and you know, but it, economics is at the heart of it, and you know, we're we're very lucky that at this point in time, the renewable sector has sort of crossed that threshold, so that we are the most economical option, and that's why we see advocates for coal and and for nuclear power looking for market interventions, right, to provide uh, a leg up, and you know, the irony is, you know, the coal facilities have been, when there have been events like the polar vortex, coal piles froze. And when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, they flooded. So it's not at, at all clear that those uh, there's anything about those technologies that is more inherently resilient 
than uh, Wender Solar Power. Right. So let's go back to the economic piece of this for a second. And, you know, federal tax credits for, for both wind and solar, they were renewed, which is fantastic. They also though, have a phase out in place. You know, can you talk a little bit about the policy side of that phase out? And, you know, do, is it ACOR's thought that this gives us enough enough policy stability for the industry over time? Or, you know, how do we look at what the, you know, upcoming fights in 2020 and maybe even 2022 look like? Well, that's the right period to focus on. Absolutely. Between now and 2020, I think that the economic improvements in the technology, which has gotten much cheaper, as you're probably aware, uh, wind power is 67%, two-thirds cheaper today than it was in 2009. And with solar power, that number is an astounding 85%. So you you don't see those kind of improvements. Same timeline since 2009? Since 2009. Wow. So you, you don't really see that happening in any other technology. Right. And in fact, it's a little bit like buying a three-year arm adjustable mortgage versus a 30-year mortgage. Uh, if you buy, if you want a uh, fossil-fired power plant, you have to project the future costs of that fuel. But you don't know that a volatile marketplace has been the history. Certainly with renewable power, there is no fuel cost. It's all capital cost. You amortize it. You know what it is. And year over year, that cost is going down as the technology improves. So we're in a, a much better position. But come 2021 or so, what happens is all the tax credits for wind and solar power phased out. And those that exist for all the competing forms of electricity generation, including fossil fired electricity, continue and are part of permanent law. And at that point, we need a new regime. There's been a lot of talk about a technology neutral credit, replace everything else out there in the way things like resource depletion allowances and tangible drilling costs that apply to fossil fuel, get rid of all that. Everybody gets a technology neutral tax provision and it, it there should be one. It, it needs to one way or another take care of the externality that is involved in carbon emissions. So I don't know whether that's carbon pricing or carbon tax or a technology neutral credit or even some sort of cap and trade, but there has to be some effort to deal with what I would argue is the largest externality in the history of externalities. We've got to deal with this in order to provide at least a level playing field for renewable energy post-2020. For the listeners that aren't familiar, when the tax credit was extended, it was extended along with approval to export export gas, right? So there was a political, right. literally at midnight negotiation at the final part of a major budget bill that put these pieces together. So, you know, a lot of what's going to happen in 2020 and 2022 are going to depend on what the politics look like here in Washington to get those type of things moving forward. But what we're seeing, I think, which is exciting, is a real movement within the conservative space where younger conservatives are coming around on clean energy and even climate change. 
conservative energy network just put out a poll they did i think last week or the week before nearly 70 percent of millennial conservative millennials stated that they would oppose a candidate who opposed clean energy which i thought was fascinating wow um yeah, it's, it's a really interesting, there's a really interesting effort by that group, the Conservative Energy Network, uh, also folks in um, the evangelical community uh, and, and others to start to really push for these. So how do we continue to build that bipartisan support on these issues and, and make the case on both economics and, and jobs? I mean, that's the, the, the right question. And that support is clearly there. I mean, I'll, let me highlight another recent poll that uh, Pew put out, uh, I think it was earlier this week, and the level of support, bipartisan support for expanding wind energy was 85% and for solar energy was 89%. And if you spend any time around polls, you just, you don't, you don't see those kind of numbers. And so I, I, the support is clearly there. We, we have bipartisan support in the Senate, which is really why uh, we were able to make headway on the tax measure. We've been caught in this kind of ideological crossfire. Uh, there's no reason why there should be anything partisan about renewable energy. It's cheaper. Consumers want it. Businesses want it. And uh, it doesn't contribute to uh, pollution or uh, threaten the planet, or, or or use scarce water for that matter. So there's a, um, I think a lot of momentum out there. We're seeing that uh, we're bringing economic opportunity now to a long list of you know red states that have big renewable resources where there isn't a lot of other economic opportunity, and you see you know big wind development or solar de- development. You know, the Dakotas, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, to cite just a few. Obviously, Iowa's had a renewable renaissance where they, it's not just the wind development there, but manufacturing is uh, in a big way there. Colorado, the same thing, a tremendous amount of development, tremendous amount of manufacturing, both wind and solar. So we are seeing, you know, this sector, which is, One of the biggest economic drivers we have in the country continue to grow. If I could throw a couple of statistics at you, just on the level of economic growth, we're looking at on the order of $40 billion a year over the past five years, uh, the renewable and investment, new investment, the largest source of new private sector infrastructure investment for each of the past seven years, according to BlackRock. You know, the two largest, fastest growing job categories in the country are uh, wind turbine technician and solar power installer. So we're creating jobs, driving growth, driving investment, helping local communities. And that all brings with it some political clout. So this kind of ideological opposition, I I really don't think it's sustainable. So, Greg, we, I, there's so much on the policy side and the political side we can talk about. I mean, I'd love, love to dive into the state level piece because that's really where the fight's going to be sharp for the next few years. And ACOR continues to lead. That will be another episode you and I, you and I do. Also, at some point, want to do a conversation around the international side and what's happening in places like China. Uh, I'm actually fa- I did my master's thesis on Chinese uh, energy security, so I'm sort of fascinated by the continued growth there. But one thing I want to do want to focus on just here towards the end 
We've talked a lot about the generation and the supply side, but the demand side here continues to grow quarter by quarter with companies like Google and Apple, companies like Amazon, who I know are, are some of them are members of, of Acor. You know, what's driving those corporations to do what they're doing in this space? The, the corporations are looking both at what their consumers want, and, and they know that the, these consumer-facing companies are facing demand for clean power. They, they want to know that when people are using Amazon or Google, that they're not contributing to uh, the climate problem. That's a big part of it. But they're also seeing big economic gains. And these companies, particularly companies like Amazon and Google, have really leaned into the issue. They're, these are very active members within uh, Acor. Uh, Amazon is actually on our board and executive committee. And they participate in these policy engagements in a major way. They're fighting to make sure they have the option when they uh, build a data center or a warehouse to use locally generated renewable power, they won't go there. And that's a point they'll emphasize to local leaders. And we're seeing, and, and they're helping to spread the word to make it easier for other companies to step in. Uh, you know, obviously big guys like Walmart have been doing it a long time, but there are companies like, you know, Mars Candies and Unilever and a bunch of others that are are working hard to see that their products and the supply chain they use are renewable powered. And, and we're, we're really at uh, just the very early stages of this effort. And already it's had a, a major impact. If you follow the numbers, uh, more than three gigawatts of power uh, was bought by companies, not through utilities, but directly from renewable power providers and then there, there's another four gigawatts of power that was created by residential players, residences, and companies uh, with power they're generating from solar, you know, on their own rooftops and elsewhere. Such an exciting time for the industry, Greg. If you, if you are talking to a member right now, how do they go and sign up to be part of Acor? Well, uh, you can find out about our membership on our website at acor.org. We uh, welcome participants from all sides of the renewable transaction, and uh, we uh, are uh, we host big conferences. We have our big finance conference coming up June 19 and 20 in New York City, Renewable Energy Finance Forum Wall Street, REF Wall Street. So I hope to see you there, John. And uh, for your audience, uh, please check it out on our website and, and come join us. Yeah, thanks, Greg. And let me ask one final question I ask all of the folks in the show. So, you know, if you can go back to yourself coming out of college or, or, or high school and sit down and have a coffee or a beer, you know, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> That's a long list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I, I, I might've focused sooner on this sector. I mean, I, oh, I, I like the private sector engagement yeah. and, you know, I was very uh, policy focused early on, and I've kind of stayed with that. But I, I like the business connection. I like being able to be part of building something as a solution, as opposed to uh, earlier in my career, it was, you know, 
the rules to make sure that the things that were being built weren't creating big problems. Now I like being able to you know build things that help solve the problems. Well, we we need those rules to help build them, right? So exactly. Right. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing and the leadership. Acor is really uh, hitting its stride right now. It's an exciting time for the industry. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. And uh, I look forward to next time. Absolutely. Thank you to Greg for joining us today. You can learn more about Acor at acor.org. And you can find more episodes of Experts Only at cleancapital.com. I'd like to thank our producers, uh, Emily Connor and Lauren Glickman, for their help. Look forward to getting your thoughts on other folks we should be interviewing, please feel free to reach out. And as always, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.